Let's pray. Father, we are dependent on you to send us your assistance. Father, that your word would have your way in our hearts. We do trust, as we've said already, Father, that you will hold us fast, and we know that one of the ways you do this is through the preaching of your word. But Father, we have uh, an attention, especially when watching on live stream, an attention span that tends to be short and our minds tend to wander. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to um, stay focused on your word, and Father, that your spirit, your word, your truth would dwell richly in our hearts and cause us to be closer conformed to the image of your Son. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Well, I'm happy to be with you this morning in some sense to bring God's word to you. Uh, please open in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Proverbs chapter 3. Now, before we get to the text, think with me for a moment about what it's like to desperately want relief, what it's like to be in uncomfortable circumstances where all you can think about is how you might get some relief. Of course, in the time of coronavirus, this probably isn't too hard an exercise. Maybe you want relief from the circumstances that have you concerned that you or someone you love might get sick if you leave your house. Or maybe you want relief from losing your job or your income, whether temporarily or permanently. Perhaps you want relief from government officials telling you in detail what you may or may not do. Or maybe you want relief from not being able to gather together with God's people on the Lord's Day, or even to be with family on special occasions. Perhaps you want relief from having little to do when you're used to getting up, going to work, and being productive. That's quite a list, isn't it? Kind of makes me long for relief. Now think about the many avenues for relief the world and your flesh have on offer. Your gloom might be lessened if you just order this new thing on Amazon that could be here tomorrow, or maybe even later today. Things would be fine if only you could get your kids to obey you. You'll probably feel some relief if you just vent your anger, whether against those around you or just in their hearing, or maybe by posting a rant on Facebook. Maybe the pain won't be so intense if you just have a drink or take some pills. You think you'll feel a little better, at least for a while, if you click to something inappropriate on the internet. Or maybe, probably the most common one, you could find relief just by going to the refrigerator or the pantry. Friends, it's not for nothing that jokes are going around about how we're all gaining the COVID-19. While overeating and quarantine may be one of the tamer examples of how we look for relief in ways that gratify the flesh, this hints to us it's something that is a real problem. You see, no matter how many ways we find to feed our fleshly cravings, have you noticed this? Those cravings never seem to get any weaker. In fact, they get stronger. And we know from the opening pages of Scripture that feeding these fleshly cravings lead in only one direction, death. But still, we have these longings, don't we? So what are we to do with them? Beloved, the text in front of us today holds out clear and practical instructions to us exactly at this point, where our constant longing for well-being and success and relief meets our need for God. God. 
in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 10, we find three conditional promises of an abundant life. From these ancient words of Solomon and living words of God, you will see that if you will turn to God in faith, forsaking your own wisdom, you will find true relief and lasting satisfaction. Please stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's word. Proverbs 3, starting with verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as I said, what we find here in this text are three conditional promises. And the way we see this is first to notice a pattern that starts back in verse 1. Solomon gives instructions or commands in the odd verses, and then he connects those commands with promises in the even verses. The odd verse is the condition, and the even verse is the promised blessing. This is the pattern starting back in verse 1 and continuing all the way through our text. So looking at verses 5 and 6, we find the first conditional promise of an abundant life. Trust God and you will know him. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. This is the condition of our first conditional promise. And it breaks into two parts, beginning with trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, the first thing to be aware of here is that the word translated trust is most often used negatively in the Old Testament. That is to say, this word is frequently used in indictments of Israel for trusting in themselves, in other nations, or in idols. By way of example, the first use of this word in the Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God describes the consequences Israel would experience in the future on account of trusting in the wrong things. There, God warns Israel, your enemies shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. In this case, God was warning through Moses that Israel would trust wrongly in its strong walls, and that this is implied, that they would trust in their strong walls instead of in God. Now, because this word is used way more frequently in this negative sense, we should understand that Solomon is using a word intentionally that should bring to mind the biblical warnings that a host of other objects and creatures and false gods will compete for our trust. And so it's an urgent matter that in the midst of that competition, the reader is to direct his heart to put his trust in the Lord. And it's important, as you might expect, that what the Lord is instructing through Solomon here is that we should place not just some of our trust in the Lord, but that we must trust him with all our hearts. Scripture is full of this theme, as we find in such places as Psalm 86, 11, where the psalmist writes, give me an undivided a heart, a heart where the trust isn't somewhere else, but it's fully in God. 
that I may fear your name. And while there are many things that could compete for our heart's trust, Solomon does have one particular thing in mind here, which is found in the second part of verse 5. He says, do not lean on your own understanding. Now, while he's already told us that we must put our trust nowhere other than in God, here the warning in particular is that our own understanding will compete with God for our heart's trust. And not just that it will compete. There's also an implication here of what it will lead to if we trust in our own understanding. You see, the word Solomon uses here that's translated lean on most often carries the literal meaning of putting your weight on, leaning on, as one would lean on a weak staff or stick and have it break so he would fall. That's the way in which this word is used in 2 Kings 18 when the Assyrian envoy warns King Hezekiah against relying or leaning on the foreign nation of Egypt. He warns Judah's king with these words. Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leads, leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. And so is our own understanding. So again, back in Proverbs 3, verse 5, while we find a positive command to put wholehearted trust in the Lord, we also see warnings, both explicit and implicit, about where not to put that trust. And most of all, not to put it in our own understanding, which we can expect to meet with disastrous results if we do. So there's the first condition from verse 5. Trust in God and in nothing else, especially not in yourself. Verse 6 gives us the promise tied to this condition and also comes in two parts, starting with these words. In all your ways you will know him. Now you may have just noticed that what I read isn't exactly how your English version reads. While it is true that the verb form here can be taken as a command, this same verb form is also used, especially in this section of Proverbs, to give forceful promises. And in part, what makes this the better choice here is the pattern we observed from the beginning, remember? Odd verses give commands or conditions. Even verses, which would include, of course, verse 6, give the corresponding promises. So let's connect these. If you fulfill the conditions of verse 5, trusting in God and not in yourself, the first part of the promise in verse 6 is, you will know God. Now, friends, take a minute here and think about this. I know we're not very far into the text, but I don't think it's too much to say that this really is the key to the whole thing. Our own understanding does not lead us to God. The evidence of this fact is as old as Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, their impulse, their own understanding, led them to hide from God. And this is your impulse, too, if you look to yourself. Friend, if you're honest, you know, in your sin and in your own understanding of your guilt and inability, that you have need to flee from God. But... If instead of looking to yourself and all of the other false refuges that call out to you, you will look to him and trust him, you will know God. Now this is the God in Solomon's experience and his understanding of progressive revelation, the God who had provided a sin sacrifice for Adam and Eve, and who continued to provide sin sacrifices on a massive scale in Israel. 
And beloved, in our experience, this is the God who has now made atonement through the wrath-bearing sacrifice of his own son on the cross in our place. If we will look and see this and trust him for it, we will know him this way as a God of unimaginable and self-giving mercy. As one commentator observes here, the word yada, the word translated no, is one of intimacy, even one of desiring God's presence, even his presence for protection. So instead of fleeing from him, now knowing him as he is, as he's revealed himself in the cross, you want to flee to him. Friends, it is truly only in the gospel that you can overcome your own understanding that tells you that you are God's enemy and he is yours. And only in the gospel can you come to know him as the merciful and loving God that he is. And this knowing God, verse 6, is something that will permeate all of life for the one who trusts in God instead of self. In all your ways, it says, you will know him. And the next part of, part of verse 6, the result of this will be the beginning of the well-being and relief for which everyone longs in this sin-cursed world. Solomon continues, and he will make your paths straight. Now the idea here is that if you know God in this personal way, if trusting him and not yourself has brought you to this intimate knowledge, this intimate desire for his presence, then he will make your way both morally upright and successful. Now you might think here of Romans 8, verses 28 to 39, which is part of what I read earlier in the pastoral prayer, because this teaching is the same thing. If you know God savingly, if you love him and are called according to his purpose, then he has justified you and will sanctify you and he will glorify you. There is nothing that can separate you from ultimate total uprightness and prosperity. And while this is primarily an eternal hope, these realities do begin to work themselves out in the here and now. Now take a moment with me and think about how that is. How do these realities of knowing God in all our ways and having our paths made straight work themselves out now in this life? I think to answer this question, it'll help to think back to the call of our false refuges. Now, I won't rehearse the list. I think you know what I'm talking about. And hopefully you even have in mind the false gods that call out to you in particular. Now think, what kind of salvation do those false gods offer? How many times have you gone to those refuges, even in the past week? How many times have you chosen sin in your frustration, in your sadness, in your longing? And how has that worked out for you? Friend, you know the nature of those gods. If you will look at it through the eyes of Scripture, through the eyes of truth, they promise life, but what they give is misery and death. And friend, you know, even if just because I'm explaining it to you this morning, you also know the nature of the one true God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who paid everything so that you could enjoy his blessed smile eternally. 
Oh, please, won't you look with me and see this? Your wisdom and your false refuges are worthy of none of your trust. Do not trust in your own understanding. Instead, trust God and you will know him. Moving to verses 7 and 8, let's look at the second conditional promise of an abundant life. Number two, humble yourself and God will heal you. Now the first half of verse 7 is similar to the second half of verse 5. If you look at your handout, you'll see that verses 5 to 7 form what is called a chiasm, which is fairly common in Hebrew poetry. This is where, if you divide that section in half, each component of the second half sort of mirrors the corresponding component of the first half, like I've tried to represent on the handout. So this helps make sense of why the beginning of verse 5 is really just another way of expressing the same truth found in verse 7, but with a slightly different nuance. The last part of verse 5, do not lean on your own understanding, and the first part of verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Now that phrase, in your own eyes, is an idiom that basically means in your own opinion. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now as I think I've mentioned more than once already, this is Solomon writing, but I don't think I've mentioned who his primary audience was when he wrote. Solomon wrote as a wise older man instructing primarily younger men, specifically to instruct his sons who would one day be the leaders in Israel. Now, if you think about it, doesn't it make sense that the son of a king might be tempted to think that his position and even the wisdom he was gaining from his father's instruction made him wise in himself? And what about us? We live in such a wealthy and educated and privileged society. And I think when viewed in a certain light, this may actually be where many of our miseries stem from. You look at yourself and you, your resources and you think, I'm one of the enlightened ones. When the pressure mounts, I will be able to find what will bring me relief. I have the internet. I have insurance for this. I have a bank account. I have the knowledge. Or again, as a last resort, at least I have a well-stocked pantry and refrigerator. My friends, we all have this tendency to think we are the wise ones. Again, it's at least as old as the garden. And these false hopes of ours are no different from Israel's trust in strong city walls, foreign alliances, or even in the false god Chemosh. And so this is an admonition you must always keep in mind. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Because whoever you are, rich or poor, child or adult, high school educated or PhD, I can tell you with confidence that wisdom is not in you. It's not yours. You are not wise in yourself. And what Solomon is telling us is you must have an opinion of yourself that acknowledges that you and yourself are a fool and that you constantly need to look outside yourself for wisdom. You must humble yourself. Now, I know that much of that sounds hard and unpleasant, but again, gloriously, this command, this condition in verse 7 is connected to a promise in the next verse. If you humble yourself, God will heal you. Look at verse 8. It will be healing for your body and refreshment for your bones. Now, it might seem kind of odd to you to learn that the word translated body here literally means navel like belly button. But think about this. 
Your navel is in some sense your most external part. It's the part where you were fed by your mother when you were in her womb. And so, this is an allusion to sustenance and provision you would receive from outside yourself. Did you catch that? The healing being promised to you here is a provision from outside yourself. And healing simply means restoration to a state of well-being. So if you will trust the Lord and forsake trusting in yourself and your own wisdom, if you will humble yourself, God will provide you from outside yourself restoration to a state of well-being. Now parallel with that healing in the second part of verse 8 is refreshment, which literally means drink. Whereas the healing is pictured as coming to you at your outermost part, refreshment will reach all the way to your most inward part, to your bones. We gain insight into the thought here by way of a contrast with Proverbs 22:17, where Solomon writes that a broken spirit dries up the bones. So rather than drying up your bones, this refreshment will be like giving them a refreshing drink. Now, this combination of healing and refreshment to your innermost and outermost parts is what's called a mirrorism, a poetic way of expressing the totality of something. Like to say someone does something day and night means that they're always doing that thing. And in this case, this mirrorism from your navel to your bones, it represents the entire person. And so the conditional promise is this. If you humble yourself, the Lord will restore your entire person to a state of well-being. Now, you may be wondering this already, and I think that this question should be asked, how is this different from the prosperity gospel? You see, there's an unfortunate misconception that Old Testament saints did not place their hope primarily in the life that is to come. And for this reason, the prosperity gospel often looks to the Old Testament. This misconception is that Old Testament saints somehow tended to focus on this life and this world more than the New Testament does because they didn't really understand what would come after death. On the contrary, it was Solomon himself who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, where we find in chapter 12 that Solomon has an extensive and really kind of a depressingly graphic description of the aging process in which he teaches, in verse 7, that upon experiencing earthly death, the Spirit will return to God who gave it. You see, Solomon knows that death and decay are unavoidable realities, and that what truly matters is the reality we will know after this body goes in the ground. And so, what Solomon has in mind here in Proverbs 3 is not some idea of self-willed youthfulness or name-it-and-claim-it physical healing, but rather he is thinking of the same reality of which Paul writes that though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. This is implicit in what is being taught to us in Proverbs 3, that our healing is not just a matter of what we experience in our physical bodies in this life. And this, again, is something for which we must trust God and not our own understanding. Although you might get up in the morning and feel more of the aches and pains that come with aging or the intense discomfort of disease or chronic pain, you can know from the wisdom of God's word that you have peace with him and life in abundance. And this is true healing for your whole person. Again, 
And these words come from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. This is what Jesus has accomplished for you. But he, that is prophetically the Messiah, Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. You see, Jesus came into our time and space and took on our oppressions and our chastening and our death so that he could bring us into his eternity and give us his whole person healing forever. Now remember, again, this promise is conditional. If you humble yourself and trust God's wisdom instead of your own, you will receive this. You will rejoice now in this life to say with Paul that it's a light and momentary affliction that's producing for me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While I look not at the things which are seen, but but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Friend, humble yourself and God will heal you. We've seen two conditional promises of an abundant, abundant life, and the third is this. Honor God, and he will satisfy you. Look at verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Now, what we see here is a progression that is consistent throughout Christian theology. As God works out his salvation, first bringing a man to know him, and progressively conforming him to Christ, the Lord then ordains for this to work itself out in self-sacrifice that honors God. We see this also in the book of Romans, where after 11 chapters of salvation theology, Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In Proverbs 3, verse 9, as later in Romans 12, 1, honoring the Lord takes the form of a willingness to give to him from the best of what you have. Now, this should also ultimately draw us back to the narrative of Genesis 4, when Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God because it was the best of his flock and fat portions. The language there is very similar to what we read here. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. And while there is an agricultural sense to the word produce in this context, the word translated wealth makes it clear that all of one's earthly means are in view. Whether we have, or whatever we have, and however God increases it, Solomon is telling us that we should honor God with it. Now, as most, most commentators note, there is an ethical obligation in this context that indicates that part of honoring the Lord with our wealth is being generous to others. We find this starting in the earlier verses of chapter 3, from verses 3 and 4. Do not let kindness and truth leave you, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. And then, more explicitly, in the later verses of chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Now the idea here is that if our trust is in God, we will know that he has given us everything, and that truly trusting him leads us to being selfless and generous with all that we are and with all that we have. 
So that's the condition, that we must honor the Lord by being generous and self-sacrificial with everything he's given us. And it's connected with the final promise in verse 10. Solomon concludes, So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now the word translated plenty in the first half of this verse does have the idea of abundance, but it also carries the idea of satisfaction. If you honor the Lord, he will make provision for you that is satisfying. Now hopefully that makes you think back to some of the ways we've considered in which we try but fail to find satisfaction according to our own wisdom. This, beloved, what we find here in God's instruction rather than in our own understanding, this is the way to find what we are looking for. If we honor God with everything we have and everything we are, if we see it all as his and are generous with it, we will know the joy of satisfaction. And the second half of verse 10 reinforces the idea of abundant blessing. Your vats will overflow with new wine. New wine, the Hebrew word terosh, refers to the juice that just starts to drip from the grapes even before they're pressed or treaded as they sit in the holding container. And the word vats refers to stone basins that would sit below the pressing area, ready to catch the liquid that would flow down. So the idea here is this. Without any effort on your part, without any pressing or treading, the blessing that will flow to you will be so abundant that it will overflow the sides of the basins meant to catch the entire product of your efforts. All without anything coming from you. This is super abundant blessing. Now again, we should probably ask, does this mean that if we do these things, we'll all wake up tomorrow with a million dollars in the bank? And of course, the answer is no. But it does mean, as David says in Psalm 23, that because the Lord is our shepherd, we will never lack anything we need. Now I understand if that answer doesn't immediately feel like it reaches all the way to you, where you are in your life. So let's consider how this is actually supposed to work itself out in the here and now. And I think we'll find some help on this from some of Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark. And why don't you go ahead and turn there? It's, it's good to see this text. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 28. I'll give you a second to get there. Mark 10, starting with verse 28. Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Friends, while our ultimate hope is indeed eternal life, the church is the place where all of this is worked out for us in ways that will satisfy us for now, in this age. Now, I know that we, Calvary Bible Church, we've been apart for a season, but do your hearts long to gather together again with brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Are you delighting even now in the ways the Lord has given for, for you to take from all that you have in order to give selflessly? And is the top priority in your giving the increase of the splendor and beauty of the one thing God is doing in the world, which is building his church? Are you sharing in or eager to share in the multitude of blessings God has given to us as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children and grandparents in the Lord, united in one body under one head? Brothers and sisters, realize that this is our appointed foretaste of the abundance God has appointed for us. Realize this and delight yourself in it, knowing that this is just a small foretaste of the eternal pleasure and satisfaction that awaits us. Honor God and he will satisfy you. You will have no lack in this life and your eternity will be more glorious and secure than anything else you could ask for. Friends, I hope and pray you see what incredibly good news this is. By instructing you to forsake your own wisdom and to turn to him in faith, God is urging you to take the best deal imaginable. He is telling you to give up your misery in order to come to what will be joy and peace and health and well-being and satisfaction forever. Now think again about your choices in the past week, even in these past many weeks of quarantine. What lesser pleasures is God calling you away from this morning? Will you heed his call? Will you turn from your wisdom and your false refuges? Will you admit, will you confess to him right now, in Job's words, I despise not my circumstances, but myself, and repent in dust and ashes? Will you admit that you are a fool according to your own wisdom, and that you need the wisdom that can only come from God's word Will you go to his word today and in the coming week instead of those tempting false refuges that call to you? And if you're seeing this morning the goodness and grace and immeasurable value of the treasure that is in Christ, because it is in him that the Father has given us the promise of complete and total well-being and blessing, if you're seeing this treasure this morning and rejoicing that you have it, are you moved to generously and selflessly share that hope with others? Friends, it's hard to think of a better time to persuade the world that its refuges are weak and crumbling and unable to provide the safety they promised. Perhaps you know someone who's in material need. Maybe you know someone who's in spiritual need. In any case, you can be confident that God is calling you to minister to others in ways he wants to use to bring healing to their entire person. Beloved, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Walk faithfully and diligently in these good works God has prepared for you, and you will find yourself completely and wonderfully satisfied. Please close with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We thank you for the power it holds to open our eyes to the futility of lesser pleasures and to lead us 
to repentance through our greater pleasures. Father, I pray that you would help each of us, each one who hears these words, to be pierced to the heart, Father, to delight to draw near to you as we've seen the price you've paid so that we could do so. We pray, Father, that this would be for your glory and for our joy. And we ask in your son's name. Amen.